Good morning, this is your host Rusty James. It is Saturday, August 15, 2015, and this is the ride. Hey friends, I'm here for another episode, a very special episode. I have in the studio with me my father, and he is a folk musician, folk music historian, and uh, we're going to have a little discussion about folk music and the importance of that. I got to tell you a little bit of something. Growing up in my house, I fondly remember my father playing on his acoustic guitar, left-handed by the way, because only the best play left. And uh, I fondly remember times when we would just sit together as a family, he would pull out these tunes and it just affected my life in such a way that I want to, you know, I haven't done that with my kids, but I'm going to have to figure some of this stuff out because I think it's really an awesome heritage to, to keep on going in your family. So just encouragement to you, you know, you've got heritage things in your family. I encourage you guys to do that. It brings the family together and helps your kids really feel at home so I just encourage you to do that but today right in along with me is Dave Rogo my father so I want you guys to give it up and we're gonna get into this folk music thing hey dad how's it going today really well thank you beautiful day it is gorgeous we're on the road going down toward Indiana. Got to do some errands, but I thought I'd take this opportunity to introduce you to a man that I respect. He's got a beautiful music spirit about him. And, um, you know, whenever I would be listening to his playing, it would just make me feel good. You know what I mean? I, it wouldn't matter what the song is. It'd just make me feel good. It would, like, cover me like like water covering and cleansing me just like the water that we just went under one of those sprinkler systems in the corn country but anyway dad i uh i want to know when did you start well let's first let's let's start at the beginning when did you first start playing a musical instrument and what was that instrument um, I started with guitar uh, uh, in 1958. My folks bought me a Sears guitar, and uh, for weeks I tried to play it right-handed, but I am just so profoundly left-handed that it was useless to try. And my dad was a banjo player, and he said, let's turn the strings around and make it left-handed and see if you can play. He did that, and even though I didn't know how to play, it just felt right to play left-handed, and I've been doing it for some 60 years. I play lots of other instruments now, but they're all left-handed. So, it felt natural when you were holding that guitar left-handed. Does that mean that you used to air band left-handed? Do you know what air banding is? <laughs> oh yeah, I probably did that when I was a kid. I do everything left-handed. I had left-handed uh, cap guns when I was a kid. Everything I did was left-handed. Left-handed holsters and everything else. Uh, I cast left-handed when I went fishing. So I'm just, I tell people I even sleep left-handed, um, whatever that means. Uh, so it's just been a part of my life to do it that way. And I know every time I sing in public, somebody will eventually say, hey, your guitar's backwards, but I'm used to it by now. Well, you got to just tell them that, you know, only the best play with their left hands. So tell me, um, when you were growing up, what was your first exposure to this music that I'm calling folk music? And maybe can you describe for us what folk music means to you? Well, as a kid growing up, my mom was a teacher before she got married. And uh, we had lots of classical music in the house. So, in those days, we had lots and lots of records, 33 and a third hi-fi, um, but most of it was Mozart and Beethoven, etc. 
but we had uh, a lot of gospel albums also of Tennessee Ernie Ford etc but the ones that I liked the best were Burl Ives music and uh, I didn't know that much about it when I first started but mom had those albums and then we found the songbooks in a music store that went with the albums and I started learning to play those songs and uh, learning to find out exactly what was the difference between playing Mozart and playing Burl Ives music or traditional folk songs. Did you actually attempt to play things like Mozart? Well, I liked it. I still do. I really like classical music, but it didn't take very long to realize that it took a different kind of expertise um, to do that kind of music. And, you know, being, I was 14 at the time, and I wasn't about to uh, learn classical music. Um, actually, there wasn't any money for lessons and that kind of thing. So I bought songbooks that were cheap, a dollar and a half at that time is what you'd pay for a songbook. And I learned how to play the guitar. And the folk songs were simple enough that, uh, and easy enough and, and uh, short enough songs that I really was something I could do. So out of that, I began to develop a, a passion for that kind of music. And uh, also at the same time, that was in 1954, um, Elvis was just starting. And for some reason, I just never liked that. Forgive me if you're an Elvis fan. But I never really got into rock music very much. I just liked the gentle quietness of folk music uh, more than rock and roll. So folk always has kind of been my genre. I can I can dig that. So tell me, do you find that the girls of the day were really into folk singers or were they more into the Elvis stuff? Um, actually, that's a moot question because at the time, I wasn't much into the girls anyway. Uh, I was more into music and poems and you know, I, I liked that kind of stuff as I went through high school. And I never dated much, and there's a whole lot of story there as to why. But I just uh, kind of was a loner with my music and my books. Well, I can totally understand, uh, you know, as much as people might think that I'm just some wild and crazy guy, you know, Rusty James was pretty much kind of a loner too. So I, I see where um, maybe I get some of that stuff. And you know what? It actually feels good to be comfortable in your own skin enough to, you know, be involved in music and writing and poetry. I, I can dig that. I I can totally see the the draw to that. So that is a that's cool. So with uh, with your excitement about folk music at the time, and you're starting to pick it up. You mentioned Burl Ives now. Me being the younger generation, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but Burl Ives, wasn't he the voice behind the snowman and the Rudolph uh, stop-motion things? Yeah, he was. Uh, Burl Ives started out, he quit college in the 30s, and of course the things were really rough in the 30s. He quit college, he was going to be a teacher, but he took off with his banjo and he just uh, rode freight trains and some, like so many people did back then and uh, rode around the country learning music from all kinds of different people. Uh, it was a good way, uh, you're getting, if you ride a freight train, you never know where you're going to end up. And you just learn the music of the area where you are, whether it's down south or Minnesota or out west someplace. There were a lot of people during that period who were doing that, and there was a lot of, of traveling around because people were looking for work. Um, but there was a whole big thing of collecting songs at that time, and that's, that's kind of where Burl came from. But as, as things went on in his life, uh, later on in his life, as things settled down, he became an actor and was in plays in New York and was in movies. Uh, he was uh, Big Daddy in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof uh, with Elizabeth Taylor, and, and uh, he was in a whole lot of movies. And... Uh, he also ended up doing the, the Frosty the Snowman thing. Uh, so he was involved in a whole lot of things. Maybe people remember him for, for the snowman thing or for 
um, a little bitty tear let me down or my funny way of laughing, those kind of songs. But basically what he was doing in the early days was collecting songs that had been around in the tradition for years and years and years. And that's the, the whole idea of folk music, is the music that didn't come out of Hollywood or didn't come out of Tin Pan Alley and wasn't classical music that was written for a paying audience. It was just the music that people sang on their front porch. And uh, there's tons of it all over the United States and all over the world. Every culture has their own local folk songs that uh, fit in with uh, the people's music. That's where the term came from. It was the music of the common folks. It wasn't necessarily written down. It wasn't necessarily attributed to any particular person as an, as an author or composer. It's just something that came out of the culture of that particular region. You know, when I think about uh, Burl Ives, for example, some of the songs that he did that I, that I remember... A lot of them were Christmas songs. I know that he did a Christmas album, or maybe many, but when I hear that, I, I instantly go back to my childhood, and it means a whole lot to me now. And I think that maybe is a maybe one of the differences between what you might call just a popular song and one that transcends a generation. And I think a lot of the, the songs that you're referring to, the folk music uh, songs and movement really um, just transcend any particular moment in time um, and it just means something in a deeper level. I, I can't put my finger on it, but I can put my finger on some songs that that are popular now that I could I could kind of believe that maybe wouldn't be that important a hundred years from now. But I can put my finger on some songs that, uh, and a couple I'm thinking of are uh, American Pie and uh, Piano Man um, from Billy Joel. Those songs, to me, uh, are timeless. And I think that uh, time will tell, I guess, whether or not they become a folk song that really speaks to more than a generation. But a lot of times I'm thinking a folk song might be speaking to a generation, but just as endearing forever. Uh, may, am I getting that right, or...? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, if, if you look at the history, especially in our country, every region had songs. You know, from the time that people first came here, um, the English settlers, the Irish settlers, they came here and they brought the music of their country with them. I'm sure there were, there were Jewish immigrants and Greek and Russian and German. Um, but because America was predominantly an English-speaking colony and then country, uh, the, the music of Northern Europe and, and the English-speaking music became the, the common language of America as we grew. Originally, that bunch of music, that set of music, English-Irish music, was what people sang uh, in the Northeast, which was the beginning part of our country. But also regionally, there was the black music of the slaves in the South and uh, other people's uh, groups that came. And every region developed its own set of music uh, until there were probably two large groups, black music, African-American music, and English uh, source music. And it's, it's incredible how they have grown um, separately for a long time and then as the culture began to develop, especially after the Civil War, those two musics began to blend until you look at music today and the source of popular music today, which is recorded music, etc., not, con not really considered the folk music of bygone eras. That music is a blend of African music and what we consider um, the, the English heritage songs. Although there's a tremendous move with what's called indie music, with world music, which is a blending of all kinds of cultures from South Africa to Russia to America to Hawaii, Australia, everywhere. Um, the music is being blended all over the place and it's lost its regional quality that it used to have uh, yeah. maybe a hundred years ago. So 
Now I'm going to change things up just a little bit. What what about where do you fit music that is very cultural and very set in a time? For example, um, all of the maritime or um, piratey or you know sailor type songs, you know, are, is, is that folk music? I would say so. Most of the the uh, maritime music. There again, depending on what group you're talking about, if you're talking about the New England um, whaling people, the commercial sailing people, uh, a lot of those were English, a lot of them were other sailors that came from Portugal and Spain and other places. Um, but there are also regional maritime songs, as you know, sailors came from all over the place. There could be um, freed black men who had their own musical heritage that uh, were on a whaling ship with all kinds of other sailors from all over the world. Those musics began to blend, but the particular maritime music we're talking about usually came from the idea of work songs and most of the sea shanty type music, if you're looking at, at that particular genre of music, is music that was used as work songs of her raising sails and uh, those different kinds of things. Um, those songs all fit with what people were doing. Lots of folk music did the same kind of thing. Uh, a lot of the African music was field holler music, it's called, where just to make work go by easier, they would sing. People that uh, helped build the railroads, um, people that uh, cut tunnels through mountains, People that built the Erie Canal, people that cut down trees up in Minnesota and Michigan. Give me an example of a field holler song. I, mean, I think I'm kind of picturing it. Well, most of the African music was different than the European music. Uh, most of the African music, the tradition was um, that there would be one leader and then a chorus behind him. The leader would sing a, a song. Uh, the, the first lines of a song, and then the rest of the people that were working with him in the field would sing kind of a chorus or an echo behind him. That's a particularly African musical form. Um, the English uh, music didn't flow that way. We think of English music more as four-line hymn kind of tunes that were, you know, four-line poetry, ballad kind of things. They were totally different um, musical genres. So, so would it be somewhat safe to say that, you know, in our contemporary culture, we have songs that typically almost always have a chorus, a repeating section. Could you almost say that that was fathered by the African music style? It depends on how the rhythm works and uh, a whole lot of other things musically and rhythmically. Um, a lot of times the African music was more set on rhythm and saying the words over and over and repeating the words over and over, whereas the English music was more set on the melody structure kind of like we think of as an old hymn, that kind of structure uh, was set up and there were choruses, but usually they were still followed the same pattern as the verse. They were just a repeated chorus oh, after gotcha. each verse. Yeah. Um, There's a whole different uh, kind of rhythm, etc., depending on who the people were that were singing it. Popular music today could be all kinds of of amalgamations of those kinds of things, uh, depending on the region where the music came from. Um, if you find a lot of blues music, uh, it's going to be mostly African. Um, but if you find a whole lot of, of music, perhaps um, more regionally centered, it may be more English with a verse and a chorus repeating. Uh, it, it'd be pretty easy to tell what the origins of a lot of music were, just looking at the rhythm and and the way the words were put together. Cool. Well, we're going to take a little bit of a break here. We're going to have a listen to a few of these types of music, and we will be back in just a moment. Wake up in the morning, 
Hey, welcome back, everybody. Um, I'm talking with Dave Rogo, and we're going to continue our discussion about folk music and the impact it has. So, Dave, tell me a little bit more about. You know, we were just talking about different song structures uh, of the different types of African music and that from European roots. So, tell us a little bit more about how uh, how folk music has progressed in early America. Well, if we start with uh, the early the early days, you know, the the English settlers that came. Uh, in the, the uh, 1600s, um, my family came over in 1650. Uh, my mom's family came in 1650 to what is now Boston. They brought with them all the songs that they had known back, uh, you know, in their home countries, whether it was England or Ireland, Scotland, Wales, wh whatever it was. Uh, they brought with them their songs, and of course, the song structure that those songs were based on uh, was basically the, the uh, folk music structure of England, Ireland, Wales. Um, so when they began composing or making up new songs, they used the same um, type of music, the same formulas to write that same, their new songs. Of course, the new songs, nobody knows who wrote them now. We're looking at hundreds of years ago. It would be the same uh, with the African music that was brought over by the slave communities. Uh, West African music is is mostly built on uh, the West African Bantu um, tribal music. Um, what what can you describe what the what Bantu is that an instrument or just a type of music? The the Bantu is a tribal name. Oh. Um, so it was it was based on that from what is now. Um, Nigeria, Ghana, Sierra Leone, the Ivory Coast, that part of West Africa. That's where most of the slaves were captured and uh, it's almost embarrassing to talk about it now, but that's the way it was done. I mean, back in those days that, that uh, black people were looked at as less than human. And so they, they bought them and sold them as property and brought them here to do most of the work. Uh, it's, a, it's a sad cultural thing to mention, but by the early 1500s, most of the native peoples in the Caribbean had died off from diseases that the Europeans had brought, uh, smallpox and measles, etc. They had absolutely no resistance to, and most of them died off. So in order to raise sugar and the other crops that they were raising, um, they needed labor, so they brought the slaves uh, from Africa, and uh, some of them were captured by European slave traders. Some were Muslim slave traders who rounded people up and sold them to the Europeans. However, uh, the music that was brought here was mostly from the West African area, West African culture, and. Uh, was based on what we would think of in the West as a pentatonic scale, as a five-note scale. And uh, it was very easily done with their type of music. With the five-note scale, it was very easy to harmonize. And so that particular music was brought here, and that 
kind of music um, developed through the slave communities over the next few hundred years uh, into what we associate with black spirituals and some of the black folk songs like Oh Susanna and uh, th those kinds of songs were based on a pentatonic scale. You can still look at the music and see that it's based on a five note scale. Be that as it may, uh, the, the people in each region developed their own music, but based on the music they brought with them from their own culture. And then as they started making up songs, um, they used those same styles. And of course, as things spread, uh, and as there was connection, um, there were slaves in the North too. Most of the forefathers of our country owned slaves. And uh, so as most of those song types developed, there was a certain amount of intermarriage between the song types mm -hmm. to where you developed a particular American type of music. And uh, depending on the region where you were, um, that type of music is what developed. There were isolated places. Uh, a lot of the Scotch-Irish um, came to America to escape from persecution from the British. And the ones that settled in Appalachia back in the hollers, they developed their own particular kind of music. When the song collectors in the late 1800s started looking for traces of British history music in America, they were just flabbergasted to discover that there were British songs that had been around for four or five hundred years in Britain, but they were still being sung in various ways in the Appalachian Mountains, in Virginia, Carolinas, Kentucky, Tennessee. And so there was just this incredible thing of developing these kinds of, of uh, music and finding them. And all of a sudden, in the late 1800s, it became a big thing to start looking for all of this music that nobody sang anymore and uh, that was part of American culture. So it wasn't just Appalachia, though. There were the songs of Michigan loggers. Sure. Um, the people who built the Erie Canal were mostly Irish immigrants who came during the 1830s. 30s and 40s, the Irish potato famine uh, sent millions of people out of Ireland uh, and to America to find better lifestyles and better jobs. So all kinds of things happened and all those songs became a popular academic thing for people to begin collecting those songs and digging them up wherever they could find them and collecting them. There were a number of collecting people who did that kind of thing during those early years of the 19th and 20th century. You always know your neighbor, you always know your power, if you ever navigated on the Erie Canal. We better get along on our way, old guy, 15 miles on the Erie Canal. You bet your life I'd never profit south Fifteen miles on the Oregon now Get up there, mule, here comes the log We'll make room about six o'clock One more trip and back we go Right back home to Buffalo No bridge, everybody down no is there a particular type of folk music that really speaks to you? I don't know if it would be of different heritage, you know, or or maybe the type of songs, you know, whether they be politically motivated or or relationship motivated? Is there something that really speaks to you? Well, because of my mostly English uh, background, um, my, my uh, mom's family uh, are fr were from England, settled in the Boston area, founded the, the little uh, suburb of Boston called Walpole, Massachusetts, 
which is still there. And uh, at any rate, uh, my dad's family came from uh, England and Germany and settled in Canada and then moved to the United States. So my cultural heritage is that Northern English music. And uh, I don't have that much connection, I think, uh, with the black music, maybe because I'm white and I've always associated, and the music that I learned was always the Northern European British songs, you know, the Burl Ives music. Um, he traveled mostly in the northern part of the United States. The music that he recorded was mostly that kind of songs from Appalachia and mostly the, the north, although there were southern songs that he sang, but but he stayed particularly, and because I learned from him, um, he stayed particularly with the, the North European British style of music, and that's what I grew up with. And uh, it's difficult sometimes to be a white guy and try to sing black music and make it sound like you're authentic. And so you just don't try, you know? Um, maybe there are other musicians who can do that, but most of the music that I have known and studied in the folk music books that I've learned from and the people I've learned from have sung the British style of American folk songs. Well, I can remember hearing the kind of stuff that you would play in the family and I just found it fascinating. There were songs that were humorous. There were songs that had a, a deep political bent to them that was lost on us kids things like Froggy Went a Court, and I think a lot of people maybe remember that song. Um, but I just remember a lot of songs that I maybe didn't even know the meaning of the song, but it was important and spoke to me just because, you know, you would be singing it. It'd be part of our family and, and part of our heritage. And I, uh, I think when I think of that kind of music... Um, I always kind of wonder, well, what, you know, what brought that from its origins to our living room? And you mentioned something about Burl Ives hopping the, the train cars and stuff. And I don't know, there's something romantic about that to me. You know, you want to just kind of break loose of your job and hop on a train and go wherever it leads. And, um... I don't know, there's something romantic about that. You mentioned there were some other people that kind of had a similar lifestyle. You want to touch on that? Yeah, there is a certain amount of romanticism from a certain point of view. But if you look at what Burl Ives was doing, and some of the others, Woody Guthrie, for instance, uh, they were very talented people. Part of the problem... Uh, in that particular period of time was during the American De Depression after 1929. There's a certain amount of romanticism perhaps to us looking at it from where we are. But if you were from Oklahoma and the Dust Bowl had taken over your entire property and there was nothing you could do to find a job and your family didn't have shoes, you'd hop a train to go find a job someplace. And it wasn't particularly romantic to you at the time to do a thing like that. It was a matter of necessity. Um, sure, there is the aspect of finding the songs and traveling around all kinds of different parts of the, parts of the country. But uh, also have to look at it from who the people were and why they were moving. Uh, if you were a, a, a black sharecropper back in the 30s, and there was no way to escape from the Jim Crow and the racist business down south. You might hop a freight train and come up north to work in a factory so you could find a job that would pay you a decent amount of money to support your family. And the songs that you might have written at that particular period of time would have reflected that. A lot of Woody Guthrie songs, you know, talk about being poor, talk about not having any shoes, that kind of stuff. Um, the political songs that you might remember as a kid, when we look back at them from where we are now, 
and the progress that we've made, although in some places in the country maybe we haven't made too much, but we look back at them now and they seem kind of romantic, but they came from a period of time when there was a lot of trouble and a lot of turmoil. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road. A hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door, and I ain't got no home in this world Was a farming on the shares and always I was poor. My crops I lay into the banker's store. My wife took down and died up on the cabin floor. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. around it's mighty plain to see this world is such a great and a funny place to be all oh, the gambling man is rich and the working man is poor and i ain't got no home in this world anymore climbing on a freight train and going someplace you know, going out to California so that you could, you could pick grapes or go up to Oregon and pick hops uh, for the beer industry or whatever it was, it was a matter of finding a job to feed your family. So there's a lot of good stuff in it, but there was also a lot of not some good stuff in it at the same time. I see. So, you know, I'm always trying to find the, the beauty in a situation, and that's a good point that you bring up that Sometimes we try to romanticize kind of real gritty, real world issues. And, uh, you know, the best writing, I think, comes out of some darker places. Um, you know, you got nothing to write about if everything is happy and all of that. So I, I know that's true for my writing, too. So what are some of the things that you're listening to these days? Well, I'm still doing doing research into practically every any area that I happen to to be looking at. You know, I, I look through old song collections that that came out in the 20s and 30s, and and songs that were collected back then, or songs that were just during the great folk song revival of the 60s. Um, if you think back of those times, and if you're old enough to do that, that's when I started out. And groups like Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bob Dylan, uh, all kinds of John Denver, all kinds of people were coming along singing all of these songs. I still look into all that music that was published back then, and some of those collections that came out because those songbooks were popular and they could sell them, um, aside from being good historic collections, they have songs from all over, from all the periods of the United States, and a lot of songs that go back to England and Ireland and, and even on the continent, French songs or German songs that have been translated into English. Um, so you can still look up all that old stuff, and I still do that. Uh, it's really interesting to, uh, especially books or collections of things 
that at the beginning of each song or above each song title will will list a little history of where that song came from and it's interesting to follow some of these things back through the Appalachians or whatever um, back to their origins in Europe and there are some songs that are still being sung now that were still that were sung four or five hundred years ago uh, there's a song that uh, became really popular Peter Paul and Mary recorded um, uh, called uh, Kilgary Mountain and it's an old Irish song that probably goes back 500 years and they were collected by British scholars and then they found them in America some perhaps differently but still basically the same song and uh, I just like doing that kind of thing um, not to be too academic about it but it's called ethnomusicology to, to study the ethnic heritage of a song to see where it came from and how it's changed over the last three or four hundred years depending on who has been singing it even in America depending on who sang it uh, people would borrow melodies from all over the place melodies they knew or old melodies from England and make up a new song um, if you remember the song Camp Town Races Five Miles Long Doodah yeah I remember that that song was rewritten I don't know how many times depending on what was going on um, there's a song uh, about going to California and uh, it's about uh, a windy ship and a, and a wonderful trip doodah doodah and uh, there's plenty of gold so I've been told in the banks of California the banks of the Sacramento so it was a gold miner song and it's, it's really kind of interesting to follow where these melodies show up and who might have brought them from one place to another of course America has always been expanding from the East Coast toward the West you know until you know America became uh, a country of from you know sea to shining sea and then the songs went with them as they moved west and it's really kind of fun to follow them see how they've changed and different groups have sung them over the years it's kind of like the people who study language really if if you look at different dialects and how a word is used and changed over time and and seems to me like something that's living and breathing like language uh, this is very much the same thing, uh, except it's in musical form. That's very true. Uh, you can you can follow. Look at look at uh, a song, for instance, like Kilgetty Mountain. You can you can look at it, and of course the words were different when it was sung in Irish. Um, it might have been sung in Gaelic in the first place, but when it was sung in English, and as it progressed uh, and changed, uh, the language changed, and as it a song would move west with the pioneers depending on the uh, particular group of people who picked up that melody um, if they were a bunch of uh, loggers who happened to be Norwegian or Swedish there would be a particular bent to that song that might have come from England or Ireland but it might end up with a, a, a little bit more Scandinavian flavor so finding them and finding the differences, it can be a lot of fun and uh, it really be an, an interesting pursuit. Um, a lot of it is for fun. A lot of the, the music, um, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, um, music was written from, from trial and, and hard times. But there are a lot of funny songs. I'm sure that you remember as we were growing up that we sang a lot of funny, silly songs that... Uh, I remember Fod. Fod is a, is a pretend song that was made up. It's a silly song. There are a bunch of them like that. Um, there's another one called um, I've Got a Horse Named Bill. And uh, it's a complete nonsense song, and it's done to the tune of Dixie. Um, but it was just done for fun. And the songs were done for fun, maybe in hard times, when... You know, if you can't cry, you laugh. Uh, that kind of thing. But also, there are just there were good times in America, uh, going west, leaving back east in the in the polluted, crowded cities, and moving out west and having 
the government give you some land and 40 acres and a mule. That was incredible uh, for people back east to get that and to move out west and start a, a brand new life. And they sang a lot of fun songs as they went out west. A lot of them made fun of the way things were. There's a song uh, called The Bent County Bachelor that's about 30 verses long. And every verse ends up with, what a wonderful life it is, starving to death on my government claim. <laughs> it's humorous, but it's still true. So all the songs weren't necessarily you know, out of struggle. There were a lot of fun songs, but there was a lot of parody. And uh, you can find all kinds of things. A lot of songs that were written for a particular purpose ended up being sung by children because people stopped singing them as adults or they sang them to their kids and the kids liked them. I'm sure that happened in my house. Oh, I'm sure that I'm going to want to learn the chords. Well, I actually did learn the chords to Fod. The That song, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I remember there's some really, I mean, this is kind of weird stuff. Well, the song is, is a made-up silly song. Um, actually, uh, it's about a guy who was mowing his field and he got bit by a big black snake down in the field and, and, and the, the, the whole flow of the song is that as the pison began to affect him he began to hallucinate and uh, the verses go on about his hallucinations and they get sillier and sillier the more he hallucinated and the chorus gets even sillier um, but the whole point of it was uh, to kind of make fun of the fact that life is hard and uh, sometimes you just have to laugh about what's going on, you know. Uh, sometimes that might be induced by uh, a little corn liquor or whatever, but uh, sometimes the songs were just to relieve tension. Sometimes they were from any number of different excuses. But the, the idea was that uh, these weren't composed songs for some play or some production, or of course, not a movie, but they were written by people who sat on their front porch and made up songs about what was going on in their lives. Some of them are political, some of them are religious, uh, some of them talk about faith and hope, some of them talk about where is my faith and hope now that things are so bad. But at the same time, people always had faith to hang on to. People always held on to the hope that things would get better and that it wasn't always stormy and that this too shall pass. Um, people yeah. endure. People people make it through hard times. I think we're pretty resilient, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Just look at where America has come. Um, most nations, but if we're looking at our country, where America has come, um, you know, we've, we started out as colonies of another power and we broke away from them and formed our own country. You can look at all the politics of that and all the pros and cons of whether we should have broken away. Uh, Canada became a Commonwealth country and they didn't fight a war to do it. Um, but we broke away and fought a war to do it. But we fought a war with Mexico. Uh, we fought a war with ourselves. Uh, in order to free the people who we felt were under bondage. And we're still fighting that war to this very day. So we always make it through. We always seem to rise above whatever struggles we have. And there are certainly plenty of them still. And there are still plenty of songs being written now that will enter into the folk genre as we go along. And songs will be written about the American Depression. There are lots of songs, pro and con, about Vietnam, about the wars in the Middle East, uh, racial tension. There's still a lot of things that we need to deal with, and there are still a lot of songwriters who will put their their hearts down on, in music. Do you recall, as we were talking before the interview today, you had remembered a song that... Uh, I think it was Good Morning America. Is that the one? Good Morning America, how are you? Do you remember that? Yeah, that was the song about the train. Um, Steve Goodman 
And uh, that song, you know, was a was a popular song. Was recorded, and uh, it really caught on. People were, uh, you know, really liked the song. And and as we were talking earlier this morning, that song and some others that you mentioned, like Piano Man and, and some others, those songs will probably be around a hundred years from now, and people will look back at them and see them as folk songs, and uh, see them as part of what was going on in America at that time. And uh, that's how the music will continue on. Somebody described one time, you know, what, what exactly is a folk song? And, and somebody mentioned, well, if I took a picture of a bird in flight, it wouldn't, the picture wouldn't be the bird. So if in the same vein, if, I, if I'd look at a folk song that's been written down in a book, the song that's written down is not that song. It is a picture of that song at the moment it was written down. Because that song probably came from a long heritage of somebody inventing it to cover some particular event in their life or in their country. And it's been around for a long time and people still sing it. And I have a picture of it that was printed in a book. But the song itself will probably go on for a long time still. And there may come other situations in the country where all of a sudden that song will be relevant again. And it will fit what people are going through. And that song will become popular in the public imagination again. And it'll stay in, in the folk tradition for a long time. Music is going to do that. Uh, the songs will continue to grow and change. It's almost like the song really is the song when it has the breath of the human in it. And, uh, and it's speaking to the listener at that moment in time. And I think it's really powerful how the thoughts and the, the musicianship and the, the lyric and all of these things make up parts of the song. But the song is way much more than that. There's an emotion. There's almost a spirit behind the song. And uh, as it's sung and it changed over time, it, it just gets a new, a deeper meaning, I think. And uh, I think that this is really exciting to talk about. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I haven't thought a lot about, you know, the impact of folk music on my day-to-day -day world. And I think a lot of people listening might not have really had... Uh, you know, had much thoughts about that, and um, but I'm, I think that after we've heard what you've told us today, it really could cause us to rethink, you know, our thoughts about that. I think there's such a, um, uh, I keep coming back to there's kind of a spirit behind it. There's just something more than just the song itself that is in the is in that um, I don't even want to call it a song it's in the environment when you're hearing the song and, and when you are um, either singing it or hearing it there's just something powerful there and I think that's really exciting I'm, I thank you uh, Dave for bringing that out uh, in this interview and we wish you the best are there uh, things that you are uh, doing in the near future involved with folk music that you want to share well, I, I belong to a group in Kalamazoo called Kazoo Folklife. It's been around since, uh, well, I was going to Western Michigan University back in the 60s, and there was a, a coffee house on the campus called Canterbury House. And uh, it was a coffee house kind of thing where people got together and just sang for the fun of it and shared songs that meant something to them. And a lot of it was political because it was the Vietnam era. But a lot of people were singing those old songs that I knew. And we're still doing that kind of thing. Kazoo Folklife grew out of that um, Canterbury House uh, situation. And now we sing at farmer's markets. Uh, some of us sing at um, different venues. Sometimes we put on concerts and bring in other singers from other regions. Uh, we sing at nursing homes, and uh, one of my favorite places is singing at nursing homes where sometimes I'll sing with some elderly folks, and I can tell that I've hit a nerve. All of a sudden, 
Uh, even in an Alzheimer's unit, there's one lady that whenever I come in, she says, oh, goody, we're going to sing Oh, Susanna. And she might not have even remembered that song until she saw me walk in with my guitar and singing some of those old songs, some of the old hymns that they remember from church, uh, just open up memories that have kind of clouded over. I mean, they do that to people who aren't in Alzheimer's. Um, that's part of our heritage that I, I really believe we need to keep doing. My heart is to get involved in schools and in homeschool groups and to make sure that generations that are coming up know the heritage of music that we have in this country. Uh, I know you can't take a group of fourth graders and make it too academic, but you can make it really fun for them to, to touch in and bond and bind with our heritage in music. That's the, the joy of my heart right now. Well, I know that, yeah, you make it fun, they will just keep coming back for more and more. And this, the world we live in today, it's too easy to get just buried into mobile technology and all that good stuff. Uh, and I'm a tech head too, as you know, but, but you know, there's something really satisfying about um, the connection with other people when you're involved in music like this. And that's exciting that you're wanting to get involved with the youth. I, that, I applaud that. And I'd say more power to you. And uh, anything else you'd like to say before we close out today? Well, I don't want to negate technology at all. I mean, what we're doing is fun. We're looking back at days before recorded music and, and uh, days when singing was a front porch thing. That's great. But at the same time, the, the way that technology is working, um, I have an extensive CD collection of that kind of music. I love to go on YouTube and look up all kinds of songs and different ways that different people sing them. There are people who are teaching all kinds of, of instrument instruction and stuff like that uh, online. So I would not, uh, you know, disparage technology at all. I don't want to become a slave to it, but using it for what good it can do for whatever thing we're, we're involved in, I think is really great. Actually, you know, if you think about it, Burl Ives was hopping the train. That was the technology of the day. It got it got him from place to place. And if you think about that, you know, the technology of YouTube, for example, is opening my eyes up to different songs and different ways of playing that I never would have been exposed to. So in a way, it's doing what the uh, um, what the culture is doing today. So it is it is a valid part of today's culture. And uh, so that's exciting, and I'm glad you touched on it in that way. Well, Dave, I'm really glad you came here with us today. Thanks for sharing your heart. Thanks for sharing your uh, your your skills and your knowledge of the of that. Uh, I don't even want to call it a genre of music because it's just bigger than that. It's just over a lot of things. It's it's really the human experience with music, and and storytelling, and um, just the beautiful flavors of humanity. And so, thanks for sharing with us. We wish you the best. I want to tell all our listeners to uh, check out some stuff on YouTube. Uh, we dropped some names today, and you'll and I'm going to throw in some uh, some clips of some music so you can get some taste of this stuff. And it is really cool. It'll open your eyes if you've only been listening to uh, Lady Gaga for the last three years. You got to open yourself up to some of this other stuff. So check it out. That's it for today. I love you. Live in peace, and we will see you on the flip.